Hi there. We are in the middle of a series of messages from Paul's letter to the Galatian churches. Galatians is a strongly worded letter. Indeed, one commentator called it the angry young sibling of Paul's more composed and reflective letter to Rome. I love that characterization. Paul had some really important stuff he needed the Galatians to understand and address, and he wasn't afraid to use dramatic and forceful words to make his point. Because, as Ian explained in the first message in our series, imposters in the churches were threatening to undermine the very basis of the gospel. These intruders had gained a foothold in the churches and were urging the male Gentile believers to be circumcised so that they would meet the requirements of Torah, the Jewish law. Not a big deal, you might think, but Paul understood that they were essentially saying that to be Christians, they first had to become Jews subject to the Jewish law. And there was no way he was going to accept that. Paul challenged them that if righteousness could be gained by means of the law, then Jesus had died for no purpose. But because of sin, the law couldn't make them righteous, neither Gentile or Jew. In fact, only Jesus could redeem them, Jew and Gentile, from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for them. So that in his death, they and us have been set free from the law of sin and death to be joined with him in the community of faith that God had always promised. Commentator Michael Bird put it like this, by the Messiah's death, believers have been rescued from the evil age. God's new world has dawned and with it a new community has come into being, the community that God had always promised to create. The curses of the law have been born and broken on the cross with the result that Jews and Gentiles can be justified by faith, receive adoption into Abraham's renewed family and fulfill the law in a new way by life in the spirit. Jesus, not the law, is the fulcrum of God's saving action. The only way to fulfill the requirements of the law for both Jew and Gentile is in Christ by the Spirit. Paul knew there was no other way. Jesus plus anything else invalidates the gospel. We've reached the second chapter of Galatians and I'm going to focus on just one verse today. It's a verse about which Martin Luther said, Paul explains what constitutes true Christian righteousness. True Christian righteousness is the righteousness of Christ who lives in us. We must look away from our own person. Christ and my conscience must become one so that I can see nothing else but Christ crucified and raised from the dead for me. If I keep looking at myself, I'm gone. If we lose sight of Christ and begin to consider our past, we simply go to pieces. We must turn our eyes to Christ crucified and believe with all our hearts that he is our righteousness and our life. For Christ, on whom our eyes are fixed, in whom we live, who lives in us, is Lord over the law, sin, death, 
and all evil. Please turn to Galatians chapter 2 verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I read a story recently about the induction process candidates for reception into a Benedictine community go through when they make their vows to the monastic order and leave their old lives behind forever. At the appropriate moment in the service of reception, novice monks, who up until this point can walk away from the religious order with no personal implications, prostrate themselves before the altar of the chapel in the very spot where their coffins will be when they die and are completely covered by a funeral pall. At this moment, a bell sounds, the same solemn gong that is the toll at the death of a monk. Then there is absolute silence. The silence of the gathered community is finally broken by a choir of monks chanting Paul's words from Colossians, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Then more silence as the new monk reflects on his solemn vow. The silence is finally broken with the words of Psalm 118, I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. And after this proclamation of resurrection life, the abbot shouts out the words of Paul from Ephesians, Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. At that point, the bells of the abbey ring out loudly and joyfully. The new monk stands up, his funeral pall falling to the ground, and a new robe of the Benedictine order is placed upon his shoulders. He receives a kiss of peace and is welcomed into the community to live a new life hidden in Christ. While I wouldn't advocate for the monastic life, this powerful liturgy of death and resurrection is an amazing attempt to demonstrate the depth and breadth of the experience Paul is describing in Galatians 2.20. Let me read it again. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In the words of this verse, Paul encapsulates the very essence of the gospel. In many ways, this is one of the central verses in the whole letter. This verse has often been used by preachers as an exhortation to personal sanctification. It is this, but it's so much more. Tyndale called it a powerful argument for the total sufficiency and efficacy of the work of Christ. Paul gets really personal here. He's describing the impact of his own encounter with this work of Christ. This isn't just amazing theology, this is his own lived experience with Christ. And it required from Paul, just as it does for each one of us, a complete breach with our old ways and thoughts and life. 
It's a radical call to see that as Christians, we too are dead with Christ and made alive to new lives in him. The old is gone, the new has come. We've been raised to a whole new life of faith in Christ. And this was accomplished not by our best efforts to keep the law, but through God's extravagant love. So what are the implications of this for us? Well, let's break the verse up so that we can take a closer look. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The Benedictine liturgy I described tries to express something of the magnitude of the implications of Christ's crucifixion. The crucifixion was arguably the most significant event in the history of the universe. And maybe even more astounding, it was a real historical event for Jesus and, Paul tells us, for us. One of the biggest dangers we face is when we inadvertently trivialise Christ's death. Being Christians, followers of Jesus, part of his body, means so much more than trying to live a good life and showing up for church meetings when we have the time. It means being crucified with Christ. So what is Paul talking about when he says, I've been crucified with Christ? Paul uses the perfect tense to describe this act, denoting a completed event, that's Christ's crucifixion, with present consequences for Paul. He's speaking about a completed work by Christ in which he, Paul, is now fully participating. He considered his old life as having been put to death with Christ, literally ended, and therefore his life now is completely new in Christ. In 2 Corinthians, Paul said, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Just as Christ's death marked a total change in the relationship of Christ to all things, including to the law, so it did for Paul himself. Christ perfectly fulfilled the law. Paul had utterly failed to keep it. But for both, the law is no more. So Paul is now dead to any claims of the law to either commend or condemn him before God. And that's the same for each one of us. When we turned our lives over to Christ, we died to our old lives. That's past tense, it's done. It's not for dragging up again or going back to, it's dead in the ground. And when we were raised up to a completely new life in him, that's present tense. Our new lives are the ones we now live. That's the ongoing consequence of the past action. Your identity is now in Christ. First and foremost, above everything else, you are now a son or daughter of God. You belong to him. And so your old life has no hold on you anymore. It does not define who you are or what you will become. Hallelujah! You belong to Jesus now and you are therefore free to be all that he calls you to be. Let that sink in for a moment before we move on. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. In an interview with Elon Musk about why he created SpaceX, he said that it was to put the technology in place 
to establish a city on Mars so mankind can become a multi-planet species. Pressed on why he would want to do this, he said that there must be more to life than just solving one problem after the next. Humans need to be inspired. I'm not sure how inspiring it would be to live on a planet where death from extreme cold, extreme heat or oxygen deprivation would be instant the moment you stepped outside your sealed tube to enjoy a Mars sunset. But I get the cry of Musk's heart. There must be something more to life than this. We need inspiration. We need something to live for. But the answer isn't on Mars. It's right here with Jesus. The focus of Christianity is not just on dying, but through death into new life. We were crucified with Christ, but our old lives had to die so we could be raised with him. Through Christ, we have been reconciled to God and we are free now to grow into his likeness. We have a destiny in him right here, right now. Christianity is not a ticket to heaven for you when you die. It's not only about some future hope. It's about life right now. The flesh Paul is speaking about here is life in our natural bodies. We have a new life to be lived, a life of faith because of God's faithfulness as a part of God's new covenant community, his people, the church. Jews and Gentiles together, one new man in Christ, called and redeemed, heirs according to God's promise. We are those that have been redeemed from this evil age. It has no hold on us anymore. We are still in our natural bodies. Don't worry, new ones are coming. But even now we have tasted of Jesus's coming kingdom and we are spoiled for anything less. We live in the flesh, but we no longer live by its desires. Rather, we live by faith in the one who indwells us. This faith isn't bare belief or some kind of assent to doctrine. It impacts everything. It's much more than just personal piety. As followers of Jesus, we have a passionate desire to address the sin in our lives, but it's so much more than this. We have new eyes of faith to see the world through. Our vantage point has changed, and so our view of the world has changed. We are people of faith now. We live by the faith in the Son of God, not by the whims and ways of mankind. We are citizens of heaven, placed back in the world as God's ambassadors, his representatives, with a mission to share this good news of his kingdom, to show people that there is something, actually someone worth living for, to introduce others to this new life of faith that we have in Christ. And finally, he loved me and gave himself for me. We have all of this because of Jesus's extravagant action on our behalf, because of God's extreme love for us. Spurgeon said, there is a limit to everything else, but not to the love of God. There is no bottom to it. You cannot exhaust its supply. You may drink and drink and drink 
again through a long life yea and throughout eternity you may go on receiving of this love but you will never measure its heights and its depths and its lengths and its breadth god stops nowhere in his love it is as boundless and infinite as he is himself spurgeon adored the verse we've been examining today he went on to say take these blessed words of the apostle and put them in your mouth and let them lie there as wafers made with honey till they melt into your very soul who loved me and gave himself for me in all these wondrous senses keeping back nothing reserving nothing for himself nothing nay not even the name of himself he loved me and gave himself for me I'd love to close out our time together today doing just that, feasting on the apostles' words, digging deeply into them, letting them melt like honey wafers into our very souls. So in a moment, I'm gonna put Galatians 2.20 back on the screen. Once you see the words, pause the video with the words on the screen and read the passage out loud several times. Read it slowly engage with the words let them really touch you if you're watching in a group maybe each person can read it out to the group as you listen to each other let god's work speak richly and deeply to you as you listen you will likely find yourselves responding in prayer and worship calling out in thanksgiving and praise to him that's great don't move on too soon Thank him for sending Jesus to die for you. Thank him for including you in his death. Thank him that your old life is dead and you have a new life in him. Thank him that you have been rescued from this evil age. Thank him that your identity is now as a son or daughter of God. Thank him that you now live by faith because of his faithfulness. Thank him that your life is to be lived to the full right now. Thank him that you're part of his family, the promised children of Abraham, Jew and Gentile, one new man in Christ. And thank him that you have a destiny, a new purpose for your life. Okay, here we go. Click pause now.